Greetings, dear listeners. This is another exciting episode of the Remnant Podcast. This week's episode is technically not brought to you by Untuck It and Americans for Prosperity, but since they didn't know we were doing a second podcast this week, um, we figured we'd give them a shout-out again, and maybe we'll we'll talk about them more later in the episode. I have in... This is an embarrassing way to do on the sound, but it shows you the authenticity, the happening. Is I always screw up the pronunciation. Of yeah, it. everybody does. Yeah, but it's Tom Carico. 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 Okay, because it, it looks like there's an extra A in there yeah. for some reason. So it's yep. like Krakatoa kind of look. Yep, yep, yep. And it pings my dyslexia. So we're going to talk about things that go boom in a little bit. That's your specialty, right? Uh, things that fly and go boom. Bombs and rockets. Yeah, but you're. And you are a – what is your title at CSIS? Uh, senior fellow at, uh, at the Center for Strategic International Studies. Been there almost five years. Yeah. And they are um, a perfectly perfectly tolerably good uh, softball team, but we destroy them at, um, here at AEI. My, my contribution to the CSIS softball team is to not participate. That's, it's similar to my contribution. Yeah. No. Yeah. Um, and uh, but you actually you started out as a like a Claremonster, right? You like you could do oh, political yeah. theory stuff. Yeah, no, uh, political philosophy, American politics, Federalist Papers. Uh, you know, we can throw down on the ingredients of uh, the executive that uh, that Hamilton talks about. We can do that. Do you think that we have three co-equal branches of government, or do you think Congress is supreme? Oh goodness gracious! <laughs> I, I was just teaching uh, Youngstown Seton uh, Tube last night, uh-huh. uh, and. I think that the uh, in a good uh, Claremont uh, graduate school perspective, uh, the Article Two Vesting Clause actually means something. Uh, there, there's something that, contrary to uh, contrary to uh, the occasional belief in Congress, uh, the president really does have some some substantial powers. Oh, I agree with that, but he's not Caesar. And um, the first branch of government is the Article One branch, which has the power to write the laws and declare war. And create most all the courts except for the Supreme Court. And I know through Lucas Thompson that the language of co-equal only came up really – only became sort of popularized under Nixon when they were trying to argue for executive privilege so that they didn't have mm. to hand over stuff. And we've been stuck with it every day. I think, I think there's, there's something to that. Having, having said that, uh, I think really the problem of our time is the capitulation right. by Congress. I agree with that. And so, for instance, on war powers, for instance, what's, what's the, the, uh, the trend of the past couple decades is they get out and they record the YouTube video, say, mumble something about the war powers resolution and whether it's Obama or Trump bombing Syria or not Syria – um, pinprick this, tomahawks that, uh, they kind of absolve their hands and say, well, we've done our constitutional responsibility. And that's not quite right. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I mean, I think the compromise position for between people like you and me is that co-equal would actually be a step up for Congress, right? Because <laughs> at this point, Congress doesn't do what it's supposed to do. But we don't have to get into right, that. Right, right. But so how um, how did you get into um, things that go boom from yeah. being a clear monster? Yeah, so, I mean, I went through and studied constitutional law, international law, and along the way, noticed these arms control treaties, uh-huh. uh, try to figure out why some of them were made in one way with the Senate, some of them were made another way, and then I just kind of kept kept uh, sticking to it and also started working at the Claremont Institute on missile defense mm-hmm. uh, as a side job while going to grad school, and kind of stuck with that as well. So I've kind of been doing missile defense in one place or another for almost 20 years. But isn't just as an aside, and that's what this whole podcast is, is a series of asides. Isn't Claremont Institute doing missile defense sort of like the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms? It doesn't seem like they belong all together necessarily. Yeah, well, I, I mean, look, the, the, the conservative movement has many things that sometimes 
<laughs> a little bit unclear how they belong together, but but it's one of those those things that you know Ronald Reagan was for, right. and it was a big deal in the nineteen nineties when when. Clinton thought differently than the than the, the previous administrations, and so look, this has been an issue that's been percolating sure. in uh, uh, Republican and Democratic politics again for over for over thirty years uh, in a big way, and it's 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 actually a pretty funny and and interesting issue to watch. One of these days, I'm going to write the article, the five people you meet in missile defense policy circles. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it, it, there's just, there's a cast of characters. All right. So let's start sort of big picture. If let's say someone feeds Putin some bad clams and he gets kind of loopy and he wants to launch a nuclear nuclear missile preemptively at the United States for no good reason, would the missiles get through right now? Uh if he launches a, a number of them, probably so. If, probably if he so. launched just one, would we be able to yeah. stop it? Well, in principle, uh, for the past uh, 10 plus years, and this goes through the Obama administration as well, we've said that we would use any means at our disposal to try to stop that, say, accidental launch or mm. unauthorized or, or, or undeliberate launch that you described there. Uh, whether they have the capability to do that, uh, but we would we would try. And there's some uh, 40... Uh, uh, some interceptors up in Alaska and California mm -hmm. uh, that we would uh, presumably give it a shot. And those are basically just smart bullets, in effect. I mean, they're not—they're just designed to take out the thing, not right. to do anything else. Right. right. And so, since since the Reagan administration, uh, you know, we, in the past, uh, uh, the United States had nuclear weapons to kill other nuclear weapons, and the, and the Russians still do, actually. Uh, some 68 around Moscow. But since the Reagan administration, we've really doubled down, especially on hit-to-kill technology, uh, you know, hitting one bullet or right. something with another bullet. Uh, and that's really been uh, the, the, the guiding principle the past uh, couple decades of effort. Um, the nuclear missiles surrounding Moscow to protect it from nuclear missiles, uh, isn't that a little bit like like hitting a water balloon with a baseball bat, you're still going to get wet. I mean, mm -hmm. how? Where, where would they intercept it? Right. Well, you know, look, Russia's been, always been right up front about the fact that this is about contributing to their deterrent mm -hmm. uh, relative to the United States. So, you know, the the press releases out of Beijing and Moscow are always kind of whining and moaning about U.S. missile defense or allied uh, NATO missile defenses being provocative and destabilizing. They never apply that same. Uh, rubric to their own efforts. Mm -hmm. uh, so, what do they? What would that be useful for? It's not that they could stop uh, the robust U.S. Uh, nuclear force either. It, would, it might blunt it, and it might blunt it sufficiently long for them to get to uh, to get to shelter in, okay. in some way. And so, therefore, it kind of increases the uncertainty on the other side. Nothing certain, uh, but but that's in a way the the big question that has helped dominate this this uh, field in the past couple of decades is what exactly is the relation between deterrence and defense. And in a way, that's kind of uh, a big question uh, that's percolating around this week with what the Trump administration is doing. Okay, so might as well get that out of the way. What did the Trump administration do this week, or last week, really? Yeah, so on uh, January 17, they released their missile defense review. Uh, it's kind of been in the works for two years. Uh, right after President Trump got into office, he said, go hither and do this. Uh, Congress actually said, go uh, do it as well and do the following 16 things. Uh, and they've been working on it for a while, and they released it in this big shindig at the Pentagon. President Trump was there. Uh, acting uh, Defense Secretary Shanahan was there. Pence was there. All the uh, – Well, it is a big deal. Pence. Yeah, everybody was there. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, lots of speeches, and, and, then they, and then they rolled out the report. And so how is our 
what is the major policy change? How is our posture changing after in the wake of this policy, uh, the review? Right. So uh, the biggest change uh, was is really what happened last year, and that's the national defense strategy, uh, and that's that's really the most important uh, touchstone here to to understand the discussion. Uh, and the national defense strategy. Walk me through this as if. I don't know what I'm talking about, which yep. is a big stretch for some of my <laughs> listeners to even imagine I don't know. But let's imagine I don't spend a lot of time at, at on At the this. simplest level, uh-huh. uh, what the national defense strategy was, was is saying is that for the past 15 years, we've been focused on counterterrorism. Right. We've been focusing on rogue states. And now history is kind of coming back. Uh, we've awakened from our historical slumber, our, our, our holiday from history, and we have to think again about Russia and China, about Great power competition. So mm-hmm. that's the big defining theme. And then you have to look at the subsidiary nested report, the missile defense review is, okay, what does that mean for missile defense and everything else? Because for the past 20 plus years, we have been like Samson pushing on one side, Russia and China here, and completely separate from missile defense against the likes of of uh, Iran and North Korea. Mm-hmm. And so now, how do you put that together? How do you realign that's, in principle, that's a that's a pretty big shift. Right. How do you do that exactly? And that that was the task for this re, for this review. And how did they do that? <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I, I I think actually that or did a, they do that? That I, I think they did. They they began to do it. Okay. They pointed in the right direction. What's What's remarkable is that there although there's a lot of good policy language on this. At the end of the day, what they actually do is a continuation of the program of record, of the continuation of what, frankly, we've been doing under the Obama administration with some modest tweaks. Mm-hmm. And so this is kind of the big question is to what extent are we actually committed? Is this administration and everybody else actually committed to those big high-level goals of the national defense strategy? Are we really up to the task of of competing with uh, Russia and China again like we mean it? So – is that a rhetorical question? I mean, are, are we up to? I mean, what what is your actual assessment of our ability? Are we de- are we taking it seriously or 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 not? I I, I think the Pentagon is taking it very seriously. Uh-huh. I think that um, well, we got the Space Force, man. <laughs> <laughs> Look, there's some pr- very serious uh, uh, activities going on. You got Mike Griffin and John Rood, and they're going uh, as hard as they can, and and Shanahan as well, uh, to try to do really important things. And really, that, you know, the INF Treaty is kind of part of all this. You know, the, the United States is probably going to get a lot of new kinds of offensive missiles too. Uh, but the question is, are we really up to the task of, of completely ori- reorienting our air and missile defense architecture to the very complex threat that Russia and China poses? Now, keeping it, you know, keeping it big picture here, the United States for a long time has had a monopoly on some exquisite strike capabilities. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are the kinds of things that we would go in there and schwack Iraq and not have any real uh, pushback, right? Or we, we've kind of taken that for granted. We've taken a lot of things for granted as a birthright, air superiority, all this kind of stuff. And then over the past 15 years, we focused on counterterrorism. We focused on these other things and we kind of got distracted from that. And in that period of time, Russia and China bided their time and they built up a lot of this stuff when we weren't looking or when we were looking elsewhere. And so now the national defense strategy it wasn't about making something up. It was about acknowledging what was really patently obvious for the last part of the Obama administration is, hey, we got to do something different about these guys. China is the pacing threat. Mm-hmm. China is the big thing. Uh, in every conceivable metric, they're going up. And so now we have to think differently. And if we don't think differently, then they will systematically take apart our alliances and 
Japan and uh, everything else uh, just by a kind of corrosive pressure. And so th- the stakes here are very high. It's about the it's really it's about the, the place of the U.S. in the world. Right. So but so the goal for China is not to defeat us in a nuclear conflict. It's to bust up what's left of the Pax Americana and have control be the regional hegemon and control, you know, the seas around them and basically yeah. make Taiwan their so use a technical term. Win without fighting, right? right? To to push us out to take apart the alliance, the US alliance system which is of course a huge uh, strength to us that they don't have that Russia doesn't have. And so you see uh, on the one side Russia trying to undermine and subvert NATO in every way possible, even through chaos and political subversion, all this kind of stuff, uh, propaganda. And then on the other side of the world, you see China um, doing their very darndest to to develop, yes, military capabilities, but also economics and everything else to try to drive wedges between the United States and South Korea, United States and Japan. Uh, and frankly, I, I guess I call me a, a, a cynic or, or conspiracy theorist, but I think that the, um, the, the several act play that is unwinding here with North Korea is, a, is something that is not going to play well into to our role there. I think that the, the North Koreans are using us, it's really bamboozling us here, and we're kind of playing into their hands. Yeah, I mean, I want to get to that in a second. Um, but how to put this? Where is the connective tissue between us upping our nuclear deterrent and keeping the Chinese from playing games in the Spratleys and extending their sphere of influence throughout the South China Sea or whatever it is. I mean, we're, let's say we just had a we. You got to get the the best doohickeys that you wanted that take out nuclear weapons and all the rest. The likelihood that we are going to use the nuclear weapons to impose our will strikes me as unlikely. So where where is the? This has always been sort of my problem understanding some of the nuclear deterrent stuff is that since they're essentially for political purposes, unusable weapons, except in extremists, right? And, you know, they're going to be used at, at not at the beginning of any war, probably, but only at the end of a war like Hiroshima and Nagasaki, at least by us. How does that work? Is it like, I mean, we're not going to get China to back off in that region unless we are willing to threaten to, to not just bluff, but actually back up a bluff for engaging in a very serious military conflict, or do I have that wrong? Yeah. Uh, so let me put it this way. You know, again, high-level uh-huh. national defense strategy reorients the uh, the focus. And as the first principle of Alcoholics Anonymous is, first you have to admit that you have a problem. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what the, the, the most important takeaway from the NDS is. Uh-huh. Then, you know, you talk, you talk about deterrence. So the first thing that the, they did after that was to come out with the, a new nuclear posture review. And that, of course, set a lot of other folks... Uh, of various uh, political persuasions to the wailing and gnashing of teeth that the, mm. the Trump nuclear doctrine was going to have to, you know, somehow bring about the end of the world. As it turns out, that wasn't the case. Uh, the what they actually did was very prudent, very sober. Uh, mostly, what ag- aggravated people was they drew a right line under the problem, mm. uh, and the problem is Russia and China are doing shenanigans, and we've kind of been on autopilot. We've kind of been letting our nuclear deterrent rust. Right. It's disarmament by rust as opposed to modernization. Now, this is extremely simplified here, but there's a long, couple decade-long story that that, that, that that really clarifies all that. Now, so that's on that side. And what was, what was the recommendation of the Trump nuclear policy uh, that was different? Mm-hmm. Well, in part, we want to have more flexibility to respond, not with big uh, and unwieldy weapons, but uh, more flexible yield and different kinds of delivery systems. Right? That was the, that was really the only thing that they did different, mm-hmm. other than the from the Obama program of record, 
except for describing the problem in different terms. And so when everything kind of settled down after that big uh, debate last year, uh, you're kind of left with something that is basically a continuation. But the difference between that and the missile defense review, again, is that our nuclear deterrent has always been about the, the deterring the big thing from mm-hmm. Russia and China. And so it didn't need all that much emendation. On the missile defense side, it's not just about nukes, first of all. In fact, it's probably not even primarily about nuclear weapons. It's about uh, deterring kind of conventional cruise missile attack, conventional right. ballistic missile attack, and this, this this new thing, this sort of hypersonic glide vehicle thing, which kind of flies around and maneuvers the significance of that in, in the atmosphere. The significance of that is can it ev- be better at evading defenses. Mm-hmm. But what's the significance of that? Though the significance of this glide vehicle technology is not about a different kind of way to deliver a nuclear weapon from an ICBM. It's rather a, a kind of a better conventional cru- cruise missile of sorts right. to target what? Not the American homeland per se, but the U.S. carrier groups, mm-hmm. our forward deploy bases, all that kind of stuff. And, and here's how it fits into the overall big picture is if they can create enough um, worry on our part, if they can push us back, right. push back our carriers, push back through a variety of, of strike means and political and economic pressure – then they really succeed in their big goal, which is to take apart our alliances right. and ta- push us back out of their sandbox. Right. So a confrontation right now in the Taiwan Strait or whatever, we conceivably – or say 10 years ago, we could plausibly stare down the Chinese because we had better stuff. And if we no longer think that we have better stuff, staring them down changes the risk calculation dramatically. Sure, sure. So – First of all, just, I'm just curious because it's in my head. Do you think – two things. One, do you think we would honor our defense agreements with Taiwan? And do you think we should honor our defense agreements yeah. with Taiwan? You know, look, uh, uh, we've made – we've pledged the, the honor of the United States to a lot of different places. Now, we can look back in retrospect and say, you know, was the enlargement of NATO and this, that, or the other way and – in the heady days of the 1990s was that prudent. But as a practical matter, we have pledged the honor of the United States. And I think it would be a huge mistake for everybody uh, else involved, especially ourselves, to uh, to take apart that system. Mm-hmm. So it's one thing to you know not want to continue to expand and give more commitments. That's fine. Th- those are very good That's questions. a prudential question. At this yeah, point. yeah. But, but no, I don't think we should be uh, undoing or unwinding those kind of commitments with, uh, with any degree of uh, – uh, of alacrity. And so, you know, look, uh, again, I, I think at the end of the day, it's about a, a, our geopolitical place in the world. Are we going to be pushing forward with these alliances or do we have what it takes? And by the way, you mentioned the Space space Force. You know, that's, I, yes, I know it kind of, it sounds like a cartoon, Space Cadet kind of jokes write themselves, but that's actually pretty important. And, you know, the Republicans and the House Armed Services Committee were pushing that. Actually, I take that back. It was a bipartisan effort in the House during the Obama administration. And folks made fun of it then, too. Uh, but, you know, at the t- I was kind of for uh, Space Force before it was cool uh, in the sense that we have to reorient our efforts there in a big way. Right. But, but I mean, you, I mean, I've talked to some, you know, and I completely acknowledge that so many of these things that sound like they're high principle are really about turf. But there are a lot of Air Force guys who think there's no reason to create a separate branch of the military. We should just have a bigger budget to do that stuff in space because we're already scaled up to do that kind of stuff. Do you not agree with that? So so I, 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 I both agree with that, but let me uh, amend that. First of all, it's not just – it is about 
turf to some extent, but it's also about organization. Mm-hmm. And so you would spend 10 years recreating and kind of taking space away from the the other services and putting it all in one place. Designing the uniforms alone actually, could take forever because the Space Force uniforms gotta better be cool. It's got to be a cool hat. Cool. Be a cool hat. <laughs> but, but actually that could be – and. and what did Vice President Pence announce the other, uh, a couple of weeks ago? It wasn't a new f- uh, branch of the military. It was a space command. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's actually probably a very good development. And that put a lot of people at ease. Uh, and not so just – there's not going to be a Space Force. Well, not at this point mm-hmm. in terms of a separate service. Does, does, does Donald Trump know that? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, that's a serious question. Hey, just keep calling it the Space Force. <laughs> it'll be okay. Um, but, but why is that important on a capability basis, not just about bureaucratic turf, is that you want space – Everywhere. You want everybody. You want your army, the guys in the mud, to be talking to space. And they're, they're, guess what? They're proud of the way that they're connected to, to mm-hmm. their own satellites in space. And that's a good thing. You don't want these little stovepipes of excellence. You want everybody connected to it because it's so important. And so actually where they're, they're coming around to on the Space Command thing, eh, that's, not a bad, that's not a bad solution. Okay. So I remember talking to you about this over, um, over whiskey at a airport hotel bar in – Ohio. When I was just either out of college or just about to leave college, you know, it was the first Iraq war and all that kind of Patriot missiles were all that and huge hmm. for the next 10 years. I mean, like I remember- Captured the imagination. Yeah. It's, it's just really cool, right? How good is that? Because then there was this whole, then there was this whole sort of yeah. truth squatting and fact checking of it and it turned out that it was way overblown. Right. How much has that technology evolved? Um, how good is it? You know, like how- you know, because I remember 15 years ago, people talking about how, you know, the left was just convinced a priori that missile defense does not work. Hit to kill deniers. I'm sorry? Hit to kill deniers. It means right. it's a cottage industry. And um, and there's actually a pretty recent couple seasons ago, there was an episode of Big Bang Theory where Leonard <laughs> is talking about how he got a big grant from the government to study to use lasers to kill uh, nuclear missiles. And Penny asks him... Oh, that's great. Would that work? And he goes, oh, no, 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 no. But it's cool. I get to play with lasers or yeah, something like yeah. that. Does well, that stuff work or look, not? Wait, let me just sort of take, take it back to the beginning, the, the Desert Storm uh-huh. uh, thing that really did, first of all, capture the imagination of a lot of folks in Congress. Mm-hmm. And we wouldn't have kind of gotten the the, po- the politics of the 1990s about missile defense mm-hmm. uh, if it wasn't for that. Uh, and you know, guess what? The patriots that they threw into uh, service – uh, for Desert Storm weren't designed for that job. Yeah. They were air defenses. They weren't designed to go after scuds and ballistic missiles. Uh, but they, 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 they threw them out there. They served, if nothing else, a political assurance, and they therefore had a strategic effect by keeping Israel out of the war and all this other stuff. Um, they're, they're, as, you, as you know, in Desert Storm, the record was rather uncertain. Mm-hmm. Having said that, flash forward to 2003, it's no longer – a Patriot air defense that was thrown into service. It was something. It was a new missile that was designed for ballistic missile defense. And mm-hmm. in that in that conflict in 2003, it engaged every of the I think seven or eight ballistic missiles that it every one that it engaged, it intercepted and defeated. And so you know that was a that was a different story. And the the Patriot, the the Patriot advanced capability two and three is being used by the Saudis and the Emiratis now on the well over a hundred. Uh, engagements in the Yemen Missile War. That's mm-hmm. been going on since March of 2015. It's not 
one here and one there. It's a lot of engagements. It's the the Houthis, who is uh, a Pentagon official uh, joked yesterday, or uh, known throughout the world for their engineering prowess, <laughs> uh, might be getting some help from from uh, their friends uh, in Iran, for instance. But they're they're throwing a lot of this stuff at Saudi. They're throwing a lot of this stuff at UAE. Uh, it's not a speculative academic enterprise. It's, mm-hmm. it's being combat proven many, many times over. And so it's working. It's working. But that's just the lowest end, mm-hmm. right? That is one of the four families of these things. We've got the THAAD system that is in South Korea. There's a big hullabaloo about that. Uh, uh, it's also in Guam. And then we've got the Aegis ships floating around uh, with the standard missiles. Uh, you know, they're out there getting bigger and, and more capable all the time. Uh, last last time they intercepted was in December. And then you got the, the national missile defense the, the, uh, up in Alaska and California mm-hmm. that I talked about. And the last se- a couple times that that's engaged, uh, uh, had tests, it's hit it, you know, with eye-watering uh, mm-hmm. capability as well. So, you know, the hit-to-kill thing is very proven by now. Mm-hmm. And so then it becomes... Okay, but those are still designed for mostly ballistic missile threats. Mm. And then you get, you know, guess what? We've been doing this to go after Iran and North Korea. Russia and China watch that, and they say, okay, I'm going to go build something that flies around that, right. that flies under that. And so, in a way, you kind of have to recreate your sensors and re- recreate your uh, your interceptors for a different threat. Just as just as you know, we had to go from air defense to ballistic missile defense. Now we got to move to this other thing as well. So they're. These things are fly under, like under the radar, and not up into space and straight down. Right, right. These things are kind of bouncing along the atmosphere. Uh-huh. Um, they're designed, and Putin in his March State of the State uh, speech last year showed these nice cartoons. Yeah, some of that was BS. Right? Yeah, 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 probably so, probably so. But some of it's not. Yeah. And you know, we've been relying upon certain kinds of interceptors that we think we know exactly because ballistics, like a ball or a rock will fly exactly the direction that you throw them, unpowered, right. every time. And it's pretty predictable. But mm-hmm. when you have something that's maneuverable and it goes like this in the atmosphere, then you have a very more, you have a much more challenging uh, mm. problem. So, okay, well, let me ask you this way. Uh, um, for 30 years, ever since Star, Reagan started talking about Star Wars, right? the standard answer, which was in the Washington Post write-up of the missile review this week, the standard sort of hand-wringing thing is... It would be irresponsible of America to have a significant defense capability against incoming missiles because it would be destabilizing and thus encourage our adversaries to go uh, with an even bigger first strike because they would assume that we would now be able to mop up mop up without uh, fear of being attacked. Right? What is what is your answer to that? Yeah. So 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 my take on that is that. Uh, those kinds of criticisms need to just take a drink of coffee and, and sit down because that's not what the United States is doing. And so in this in this policy review, uh, it, it clearly says explicitly that we're going to rely upon deterrence, uh, the threat of offensive retaliation uh, when it comes to that kind of threat, mm. uh, the Russian and Chinese ICBMs. Very explicit. Uh, so that's not changed. What has changed is that we are willing to put Russia and China in the same sentence as active counters to especially their regional missile threats. Now, that's a good thing because it, it it helps raise the cost of aggression on their part. It helps increase the uncertainty so that they don't wake up tomorrow with bad clams or whatever mm-hmm. and think today's a good day, not for a big attack on the United States homeland. That, put that kind of out of the, out of the blue, out of, uh, 
both out of the blue scenario mm-hmm. aside for a moment. Um, rather, how would some? How would we really be worried something would get started? Is that there's some regional fight and there's a handful of, of of conventional missiles fired back and forth at a U.S. carrier group or base, and then something very bad happens. Uh, and then that kind of spirals out of control. And so you want to raise the cost of aggression mm-hmm. so that every single day, bad claims or not, Vladimir Putin and everybody else wakes up and says, today is not a bad day to test the resolve of the United States of America. Mm-hmm. Because it's kind it of... It is a bad day to test it. It, it, right. it is a bad... Today is not a good day <laughs> right, right. to test the resolve of the United States of America. And so therefore, uh, that's how kind of defenses contribute to deterrence. A little bit of deterrence by denial and a little bit of deterrence by uh, by retaliation. So how terrible was it on a, on a scale of 9 to 10 um, that Obama pulled out of our defense agreements with our friends in Eastern Europe? Mm. Uh, you know, looking back in retrospect, uh, it was very unfortunate the way in which that, that came about. Uh, I don't think they intended uh, for it to come out that way. Uh, but it turned out that the, the plans kind of leaked <laughs> to the, the press and they had to launch it out before they had a chance to talk to the polls and to the Czechs. So you think it was, you, you think the problem with it was a communications problem rather than the actual policy? Uh, well, well, I'm getting to that. Um, in terms of the policy, uh, I think that they, uh, the polls and the Czechs, in terms of the political relationship, uh, some bridges were burned because of the way it was rolled out. Uh, in terms of the substance, you know, what the Obama administration did in terms of the, the European phase adaptive approach, which basically means uh, you, take, uh, you take the Aegis combat system off of a ship and you put it in a field in Romania and then you put another one in Poland. That, that's, that's not a bad idea uh, relative to uh, the idea of 10 big missiles in Poland, which was kind of the Bush administration mm. plan. In terms of numbers, in terms of the potential for future uh, uh, adaptation – the Aegis uh, uh, phase adaptive approach in Europe has turned out, I think, pretty well. Uh, if anything, I might be a little bit disappointed that the Trump administration missile defense review didn't go further. They kind of mostly just continue the Obama uh, plan for, and I don't, not mostly, they, they do continue the Obama plan uh, for Europe. But, but there's a lot of potential there to adapt it, to evolve it over time, especially for these, these air threats and, and regional threats that I was talking about. What do you think, my Late friend Charles Krauthammer used to say that we need to really consider encouraging Japan to go nuclear mm. Um, in mm. response to North Korea as a as a you know counterbalance all the rest. What do you think about that? Yeah, you know there was a story in the in the Post today about uh, reports, speculation that the Saudis are building some Saudi uh, some solid uh, rocket mm-hmm. uh, some ro- solid missile facility, and I put that in the same sentence as the answer to, to about Japan because. Uh, in a, in a world of, of increasing you know, missiles everywhere and Russia and China ruling the roosts in their respective uh, areas, uh, our allies, our closest partners and allies are going to be thinking about what exactly they need uh, to defend themselves. And so on the, on the Japanese side, you know, Prime Minister Abe has been doing some fantastic things. You know, big picture here, we imposed a, a pacifist constitution on them after World War II. And they've really in the last couple decades been getting – to begin inching closer to kind of back to being a normal country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the new defense security guidelines and a new relationship with the United States, they're buying the F-35, they're buying uh, the sort of advanced missiles of various kinds, they're building their own hypersonic counterattack capabilities. That's all for the good. Mm-hmm. And the more that, that we do that and the more that we cooperate on missile defense with Japan, the longer we push away 
that kind of really hard choice between an independent deterrent of their own, nuclear weapons, uh, or, to be blunt, bandwagoning with China. Mm-hmm. Uh, any country, I'm not trying to pick on Japan here, but any country that is a, a close ally of the United States and the United States backs away from is going to face a very tough uh, question, a crisis. Do you do you bandwagon, uh, or do you uh, find some independent way to stand on your own? And of course, nuclear weapons might be uh, uh, something. To do. Now, Japan has a very robust nuclear uh, energy industry. They have they're sitting on a ton of plutonium. I mean, they could do it in like they, six months. They could do it. Yeah. Um, that's what everybody says anyway. And so, but in the scheme of things, we are better off. They're better off uh, if it's the United States that provides a strong, robust nuclear and conventional deterrent. Uh, like I said, uh, Japan is doing very good things in terms of Aegis ashore. They're also doing Aegis ashore. So the United States has got these things in Romania and Poland. Japan's getting two of their own as well, and I think that's a that's a tremendous thing. So the more conventional and defensive capability we can with Japan, the better. Okay, let's hold on for a second and talk about our first sponsor, who was really the sponsor of the first podcast this week, but the one with Charles Lane, which was pretty good. And I think everybody, if you haven't listened to it, maybe you should. But I should also say I agree with them. At the same time, there's always this weird tension about advocacy groups advertising on the podcast. We don't do a lot of that. But since I actually agree with the substance of this, um, it doesn't really bother me to, to, to read all of this and have them as a sponsor. But I just thought listeners should know. And so here we go. Since our nation's founding, America's been a beacon of freedom and prosperity envied all over the world. The freedom to trade is one of the greatest economic freedoms we have. America wins when we have the freedom to buy, sell, and compete anywhere in the world. Breaking down trade barriers um, is critical to a healthy economy and lasting prosperity. Free trade helps create jobs, lower the cost of the goods we buy, fosters new technologies, innovations, and improves our quality of life. Free trade is also part of economic liberty, which is, means that the free market isn't just a tool. It's one of our rights. Regardless, free trade benefits each of us every day. It's time for Washington to end all the protectionist trade policies and support free and open trade. Learn how you can make a difference at www.tradebuildsamerica.com. Um, I know you want to steer clear of rank punditry, but... The degree to which our – I mean, you're, you're talking about the importance of alliances. You're an alliance guy, right? And we need to lead it and have our heads in our hearts. Wired together, cooking full tilt, boogie for freedom and justice. Between the – if you were an observer from – in another country, an allied country, and you watched Obama pull out of Iraq. You watched the stuff that we did with Poland Syria. and Romania, right? Um, and then you have Trump coming in who apparently every five minutes has to be explained that maybe we shouldn't pull out of NATO. It looks like he's abandoning the Kurds or at least wants to abandon the Kurds. So there's a, there's more continuity there than discontinuity than people on the left. You know, people on the left are like, oh, our allies, our allies, we have to, right. you know, and, but it turns out that like Obama was pretty crappy to our allies too. This all sounds well and good, but it seems like the politics on the ground between the Belt and Road stuff and all of the rest and the, the Putinphilia in Eastern Europe and with Orban and all the rest, it kind of feels to me that like this is great on the drawing board, but it's not taking into account the political reality of our alliances around the what's world. Great, what's great on the drawing board? Talking about, you know, keeping Japan on, on the team and maybe not going nuclear, but being part of our larger yep. deterrent strategy. And, you know, it wasn't that big deal with the ages at sea versus Eastern Europe. But I don't think, I don't think I, we would look like a particularly reliable ally if, if I were an observer, you know, just mm. from the 
Canada stuff. You know, we we we, we called you know milk tra- trade with dairy products with Canada was a national security issue. Yeah. Recently. You know, let me be a little bit contrary here by saying that well, first of all, I think you're right about the the continuity part. Uh, you, you know, there was there was a lot of rethinking going on. Uh, kind of pull up the drawbridge mm-hmm. to Fortress America in the past decade uh, to, to nation build at home, right? There's a lot of continuity there. And it's kind of a I – mean, look, everybody has their own definition of what America first means. And as I said earlier, the biggest question is what's America's role in the world? What, what is America's role in the world for us, mm-hmm. not for somebody else? Uh, I like to point out that, that Bob Gates, who was you know Bush's last Secretary of Defense and Obama's Secretary of Defense, when he left, his exit interview – what he said is, guys, you folks in NATO, you need to start paying more for defense. So the, there's, there's a, lot of, a lot of problems with how it's being delivered and a lot of the kind of the asides mm-hmm. uh, of, of, uh, of not just the optics, but, but everything else, the atmospherics of all this. But having said that, there is some truth to the fact that our, our allies and our partners do need to do more. There has been some some freeloading. Uh, and so in that respect, some of these messages are actually pretty on point. Uh, they just could be delivered uh, differently. Yeah, look, I am, I am sympathetic. I mean, this is an argument that we've made at time from time to time at National Review. I mean, Irving Kristol was talking about getting out of NATO in the late 80s or early 90s. And it was funny, none, none of his then aptly named neocon friends would attack him for it. But if anybody else said it, they'd attack them because no one wanted to attack Irving. But – the you know the idea that basically the American defense umbrella that made the EU possible first of all and all of that that we were basically subsidizing the welfare states of a lot of our allies because they didn't have to pay for the defense and I, I get that and that's one of the reasons why you know Europe has the population implosion problems that it does and and all of the rest and I would argue perhaps Japan does too it turns out the little sort of nationalism helps you make more babies but but that's the way you're characterized look i so I, yeah sending those messages that's fine and all the rest but you know the, my my colleagues at at national review on the editor's podcast they'll often get into these big arguments with uh charlie cook and Raihan salam foremost where what Raihan will often do and i say this with, but by the way you can't listen on one and a half speed when Raihan's no you cannot um uh uh, Ron's a good friend and uh, he's a brilliant guy. But what he will often do when it comes to c- arguments about, say, trade policy in the Trump administration and all the rest is he will describe an unbelievably coherent, impressive argument about supply chains and, and you know, uh, correcting for all sorts of, like, you know, misalignments of economic resources and great power politics, yada, yada, yada. And then Charlie will respond – yeah, that's all great, but that's not what Trump's doing, right? And as Charlie put it once, I think you're looking at you're finding faces in clouds. And well, I, 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 uh, imaginary principalities. <laughs> um, so when you when you describe that this message is important, I, I love putting you in the you know pro Trump you know defending the Trump policy position. I get all that; those are all serious arguments, but. If any, if, if a fraction of the reports that we get out of the Trump administration are true about where he asks, why can't we use nuclear weapons? Why uh, maybe we need to get out of South Korea? Um, why can't we get out of NATO? Right? These are not. I, I have very hard time believing when I ever hear anybody, in, including sort of you, which you're kind of flirting with, hinting at the idea that this is all calibrated to a very subtle policy. 
argument about shifting priorities. So I, I don't know if it's it's being calibrated <laughs> subtly or otherwise to a, a particular policy. Uh, I think there's a lot of impulses here. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of impulse and, and pent up feelings and frustrations uh, that are not unique to any one uh, individual uh, in the White House, but but are common uh, throughout the throughout the country. It's just that usually those are calibrated in a different way. So I guess I guess what I would say is one. I believe in the durability of American institutions, mm-hmm. one, but also I believe in that our allies and partners also have a sophistication about them. And at the end of the day, they know the ugliness of world politics. Look at the Khashoggi thing. Look at this stuff. There are plenty of grown-ups around the world who know the ugliness of world politics. And there's only so many places you can turn. And so you look at the degree to which Prime Minister Abe is hugging President Trump. Mm-hmm. We're really hugging the United States of America, and that's exactly the right thing. That is that that's good. And all the other atmospherics and the the nonsense about the the rice and all this kind of stuff on the visit, um, I think those are details. What matters is you know are the budgets and the policies going in the right place? Because three years from now, five years from now, we will forget a lot of this. Um, a lot of these anonymous r- reports, they may be true, but but that will, I think, get get past us. Yeah, I, 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 I got to tell you, I find that a little on the rosy side, you know, in part because, you know, one of the problems that you get with the President Trump is you get a situation where, like uh, the way we started with this conversation, with the people freaking out because they hear the words nuclear and Trump in the same sentence. You know, the fight over the border wall. You had lots of Democrats voting for for border security and fences and walls and Obama bragged about building walls. And now because it's associated with Trump, walls are immoral, right? Right, right? And you can go down a very long list of these kinds of things where Macron gives that speech about Trump and nationalism or it's basically about Trump and nationalism. Well, somebody should write a book about how American politics are becoming more tribal. Yeah. I, less I, sophisticated. I was, but the the – if you make the right policies less popular and less reliable domestically or abroad because of the way they're not calibrated, I think that's a much bigger long-term problem than we have. But I, I can see you squirming about, about talking about this. So we can, but, we can, but I, I actually – on this point, I, I, there is something. You know, look, back to, uh, back to Claremont and Lincoln mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff. And there's some truth to the fact, as Lincoln said, that no one will ever take a, a drink from the Ohio River – except if it's through us messing yeah. it up. And so the chaos of American politics does matter. And nobody benefits from that uh, more than the great powers, Russia and China. And so whether it's you know monkeying with propaganda, uh, driving wedge issues, or whatever it is they're doing on social media here at home, that is part of the larger geopolitical game. Oh, I agree with that yeah. entirely. I mean, it, it's looking more and more, I haven't studied closely, but this Covington thing looks like a really brilliant... PSYOP, you know, where the this anonymous account edits this thing to make it look it perfectly calibrated to arouse everybody's tribal hatreds and it's divisive and I, I get all of that. I don't think the message from the top is a countervailing force against that tendency. I think it rather it is fueling that tendency and I think that's a problem. Fair enough. Um, I don't think we're in 1968, uh, but then you, you begin to worry uh, if this continues to to become more uh, more toxic. You know what what becomes of the country then? All right. So uh, our second sponsor, so again, sort of our second sponsor, um, is Untuck It, 
And Jack, you actually have received your untuck it accoutrement. Have you not? Or I guess not accoutrement, your, your, your shirts. <laughs> yes, I have. And I had not gotten them on uh, Tuesday when we recorded the first episode. I have one with me right now. I'm not wearing it, um, but I did try it on earlier. And I like it. It's a good shirt. It's a, it's a short sleeve button down, which I don't have any of and have been meaning to get some of. But I don't. I hate I hate shopping for clothes. The only shopping I enjoy is, I guess, for books. But no one, there are barely, bookstores are dwindling. I, I don't mind grocery shopping as a sort of ritual. Um, but I hate shopping for clothes. I hate it so much. So Untuck It made it pretty easy for me to get this shirt and to figure out what size was good for me. And it fits. It looks fine. Uh, and it just made my life much easier. So thanks, Untuck It. <laughs> and with that that uh, inspiring um emotionally rich endorsement um I should also tell you that untucked shirts aren't too long they're not too short they have that clean casual look which I can attest uh, Jack looks surprisingly clean and casual when he was wearing it um it's a look you can wear it barely the, recognized me it's a look you can wear at the office and it's also a look that you can wear when you're a man about town like Jack with more than 50 fit combinations, untucked shirts look great on tall, short, slim, and athletic guys of all ages. So go to untuckit.com or visit one of Untucket's 50 stores across the U.S. and even Canada. Untucket even offers its free shipping, offers free shipping and returns on all orders in the U.S. And you should use promo code DINGO, D-I-N-G-O, for 20% off your first purchase. So if you want that perfect fitting shirt, regardless of your shape and size, try the un- the original untucked shirt. And remember, use promo code DINGO, D-I-N-G-O, for 20% off your first purchase. Um, all right, so switch gears. There was a, I remember listening to, I think it was a Radiolab podcast about thinking about going to nuclear war, right? And there's some guy, maybe you know who he is who proposed that the button or the launch codes or whatever it is, oh, right? Yeah, I know what you're going to say. Should be sewn into the chest cavity of a senior aide to the president. And if the president wants to launch a missile, he should have to take out a hatchet and dig it out of the dead man's body um, in order to do it. Because we have a problem with innumeracy when we think about nuclear war, right? When we think about it's, – it's, it's the Stalin thing. Killing one person is a tragedy. Killing a million is a statistic. Because we depersonalize the millions of people who would die in nuclear war, we should at yeah, least have I, a high. I, I guess I, I, I think that there is no lack of seriousness and no lack of gravity about these kinds of things. And so I, I remember this from the 2016 uh, debate, and I, I, I hear again with with the nuclear enterprise and the use of nuclear weapons. I have a lot of faith in the professionalism and the. the, the you know, military officers or whatever it is, I don't think that that's the sort of thing that would be handled lightly. And I think a lot of people would put themselves uh, between between disaster and and whatever is the the the, the issue before that letting that happen. That's a comforting thought. <laughs> um, what I, I want to hear about, like cool doodads. Like what what stuff do you want us to build that we don't mm. have? Like. Well, you know, look, you, you talk about lasers, uh-huh. uh, you know, and look, like we've, we've kind of been, uh, hey, I, I laser eye surgery, best thing that ever happened to me. 
but we've been five years away from lasers for missile defense for the past 30 years. Uh, and so at some point, people are like, wait, weren't we supposed to do that? Well, actually, we did do that. We've been shooting stuff down with lasers since the mid-1990s. And so the, the technology, the concept is, has been done. And in 2009, before the Obama administration canceled it, the airborne laser shot down some missiles, um, actual ballistic missiles, uh, using a, a big laser on a 747. Now, 747 is probably not the platform that you want to have as a military thing, so I, I understand those operational. But look, actually, interestingly enough, um, we're putting lasers on big trucks for the Army. We're putting lasers on ships for the Navy. Uh, and eventually, oh, sharks. Do we have sharks with lasers? Uh, they're getting there. Okay. That's a DARPA thing. <laughs> you know, I have one simple request, and that is to have sharks with frickin' laser beams attached to their heads. Um, and so, yeah, but they're, they're not quite there for the big threats, right? Uh-huh. They're there, but they're there for the, the rockets, artillery, mortars stuff. And the technology has changed. Instead of being really ugly and toxic, it's solid-state electrical lasers. So lots of, lots of promise there. And so, you know, mate, look, yes, we've been five years away from lasers for, for 30, 35 years, uh, but we might be four years away. And it's just a matter of, of continuing to focus on that. And so I think that, uh, that directed energy in particular, uh, but actually the single most important thing that the, the Trump administration's missile defense review is doing is space sensors. Because you can't you can't kill what you can't see, mm. and for all these different kinds of missile threats, you have to have elevated sensors. Space sensors have been on the drawing board for the last six administrations as a key element of long range missile defense. Clinton, Obama, Bush, the, the both Bushes, Reagan, everybody said, "Yeah, of course you got to have sensors in space," and we haven't done it. And so it's to the administration's credit, at least on paper, still uh, that they're going to. Uh, do their darndest to field those space sensors. So on the back on the deterrence side of this, I'm you know, w- w- here at this podcast. We like uh, somewhat wacky ideas, right? Uh, I could talk to you about letters of mark for hacker computer hackers. I could talk to you about all of these various things. I could talk to you about Congressman Mike Gallagher's idea for pull up bars in all our airports. But um, a friend of mine years ago made quite a splash as a blogger by arguing that we needed to nuke the moon just to show people we could and that we were a little bit crazy, right? And well, we did talk about this in the 60s. This, 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 was, a, this was a thing. Yeah, well, you know, but as, as two conservatives, we know that all good ideas resurface from time to time. <laughs> and I knew a guy who was actually a friend of a friend who was from Taiwan who loved the Iraq war for the simple reason that it showed that George W. Bush was a crazy enough cowboy that he would throw 100,000 men halfway around the world to kick the crap out of somebody. And that probably, you know, as, as Edmund Burke likes, liked to say, example is the school of mankind and he will learn it no other. And it seems to me that a better source of uh, demonstrable deterrence um, would be showing, not telling, you know, and there's a point that Trump kind of understands, like, it's got to be great to be unpredictable and all that right, kind of stuff. Right. But I think he's yeah. OD'd on that point. Words and deeds. Yeah. Um, it seems to me that we are now sending the signal that, you know, we're not willing to do that kind of thing anymore. You and know, I don't think having more nuclear weapons and all that kind of stuff is necessarily as powerful. I, I think a signal. I think that's right. And especially allies, because nothing, nothing will assure our friends, our allies, nothing will deter our adversaries more than actions. And so that's why, for instance, in the early part of 2017, I, for one, was was gratified 
when uh, look there's some there's some war powers uh, constitutional issues here but when uh trump woke up one day and said stop doing these chemical weapons attacks we told you not to do that and he threw some tomahawks into syria mm. uh, because you know look you had to run past the syrian air defenses that might have been a little fun and all that but but there's some risk involved with that and it was a kinetic thing says we're not going to take it anymore i'm going to do this and i i thought that was the single most important act uh, that the administration had done and remained the most important thing that they had done to kind of re- re- reaffirm, reestablish what, unfortunately, uh, the Obama administration had kind of lost in saying, we're going to go punish Assad and then blinking and not doing it. I mean, Le- Obama's own Secretary of Defense, Leon Panetta, kind of has, has made that on point. Sure. The red line thing, that had some global ramifications. South Korea looks at that. Japan looks at that and says, can we can we take the United States word on whatever it is that they say the next time they give it uh, because of that. Uh, having said that, uh, whether that's been sustainable, right, and whether, you know, it may not even have that much military significance because Assad might have been able to move his stuff before we mm-hmm. got him there. But but that I think you're right about that. There's the, – that nothing shows resolve like, like that kind of kinetic action. Uh, now, the nuke the moon thing, yeah, I don't know about that, but <laughs> I'd like to actually return to the moon, uh, uh, well, plant turn the a man safely to Earth <laughs> before we before we do that again. But in a way, that's kind of – that's that's a little bit about the Space Force mm-hmm. uh, thing as well. And it's kind of always been uh, about the, the – the, the going to Mars or all this kind of stuff uh, to to inspire the next generation of engineers and and patriots and everything else, and so it, it actually does have some not merely technological and military uh, and scientific applications, but it does have a kind of an inspirational nationalism properly understood mm-hmm. application uh, as well. So I remember watching the sixty Minutes program about where they went to like, North Dakota and went into mm. some of these nuclear mm. silos, and it looked like technology. That was roughly slightly more advanced than the technology that they use for the New York City subway. I mean, and yeah. um, how it, look that stuff from the facilities may, may very well be from the 60s and 70s. Um, you know, it's very resilient to cyber attack. <laughs> it's very analog. So is my typewriter. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, especially at the end of the Cold War, we said, hey, we we won. We don't have to worry about this. We're just going to have rust by disarmament. There's this big euphoria. Then history, history starts to recur and turns out – and look, every, every, every president comes in and mouths some words about nuclear disarmament and then they start studying it. Obama did the same thing and – Golly, if we don't recur every single time to yeah, actually the triad is is really important, and we're paying a price now. And there's some new report out today about the the cost of all this. We're paying a price for the deferred maintenance and the deferred modernization. That's one of the reasons why we're hitting this big bow wave of of modernization coming up on the nuclear enterprise. But it's worth every penny uh, in terms of the deterrent value because nothing deters quite like nuclear weapons. There's no conventional substitute. Couldn't couldn't you go much? cheaper and have a lot more nuclear subs because they just seem much more terrifying to me than than silos in Nebraska or whatever. Uh, subs are actually much more expensive. Uh, are they really? Yeah. I mean, you got to operate them. Yeah. They're, they're complicated to keep at the bottom of the ocean and still make it make it go. But they're also a lot cooler. I mean, let's just be clear. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, but, but there's, but there's a, it's actually a lot cheaper to operate uh-huh. uh, ICBMs. And there, there's just a, 
there's a, a quality of quantity. And in this case, ICBMs really do contribute to deterrence by saying, look, if you want to attack the United States of America, you're going to have to go in in a big way. And all this, this number of distributed things, you're going to have to hit each one of them with two nuclear weapons just to be sure you get it. And so that is all by itself a stabilizing force to raise the threshold of a big strategic attack on the U.S. homeland very high. So what should we do about North Korea? Uh, well, back to the uh, Alcoholics Anonymous mm-hmm. uh, principle. First, we admit uh, that we have a problem. And I think currently we're being bamboozled. Uh, I think they're taking us for a ride. They're buying time. I mean, above all, they're buying normalcy or legitimacy. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I questioned the, first, the, the wisdom of the first summit. Uh, I, I would question the, the wisdom of a second summit. Uh, there was a nice story about this in the... You're so diplomatic when you're on a podcast. It's so- <laughs> <laughs> we have to go back to the drinks at a hotel in Ohio. And, um, uh, but, but yeah, I think we're being taken for a ride. And I, I think what we're losing is time. Mm-hmm. What we're losing is time and momentum. It's, we, don't, we don't hear any of the fire and fury talk. Um, and I don't think it's because we scared the North Koreans. I think that they, they were the ones conducting a maximum pressure campaign on us. And they're winning with what's happening right now. Yeah. I mean, I, I just – I don't have any desire to be diplomatic. I think this is one of the screwiest foreign policy cock-ups that we've seen um, where you know, Donald Trump on the plane back says the threat from, New- from North Korea is over, which was um, – what social scientists call bullshit <laughs> um, and the idea like my position and this is not a criticism I mean, I'll criticize that from Trump all day long but I from the get go in part because I you know Nick Eberstadt is my rabbi on this stuff um, um, never thought the North Koreans were going to voluntarily give up and they don't seem to be doing that right I mean, because for them they're stringing us along it's part – but it's, 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 it's not just a national security strategy for them. It is like wrapped up in the nationalist ideology that they've been pushing on their people about their, sort of their manifest destiny to be a world power and all this kind of stuff. And the analogy I always use is it's like asking the Hells Angels to give up motorcycles. It's just like it would, it would strip them of their actual identity. And I think we also forget that it's partly a deterrent against China. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, you know, the one thing that worries me more than, uh, you know, stri- just just buying time and, uh, and and losing momentum on this is that if they were sincere. Um, and then the question becomes, what is the price? What is the price that we as a country would have to pay? And this is this is about nego- haggling over the price at this point. Um, in order to get complete, verifiable, irreversible disarmament, which is the, the, the what Pompeo is out there as a gold standard. He's right to have that standard, and they shouldn't back down from it an inch. But then the question comes, what if they present you an offer that's too good to refuse mm-hmm. or seemingly too good to refuse? But if it comes at the price of withdrawing from the Korean Peninsula, withdrawing from Japan and pulling back, then you will know. That that's too high. That the, the the North Korean disarmament. That that is the bright shiny object that has really undermined and subverted. Again, big picture, the U.S. place in the Asia Pacific. Mm-hmm. And so you know, you see the renaming of Pacific Command as Indo PACOM, blah blah. You see the focus on space. You see the China as the pacing threat. We have to stay focused on that. But if we get knocked off our 
rocker, if we get knocked off of the goals of the national defense strategy because of chasing some bright, shiny object or some offer that pops up, as it did with the call to Erdogan, mm-hmm. so that that potential is has been demonstrated, uh, then that's that's the real potential for uh, for danger, I think. Yeah, and I I think if that offer and China is just going to be laughing all the way to the bank. Yeah, yeah. I, I I personally think that if that offer were made explicitly to Trump, Trump would take it or would want to take it for sure. He's talked about wanting to pull out of South Korea without getting anything for it. <laughs> um, yeah, and I wrote something at the time of the Singapore summit saying that price would be too high. And we, I mean, that's what we have to be able to articulate. What, what are you willing to pay? Because if you walk in to the car dealership and you say, I want to buy a, a brand new... Cadillac, whatever that car uh, salesman will will find a way to sell it to you at a at a very high price. Right, and so yeah, the questions about negotiating, saying that the, the problem is solved, all this kind of stuff. This does not uh, contribute to good negotiation. All right. Um. So I often ask. I have two sort of finishing questions that I often ask. One is the Mike Gallagher inspired one of, what's your favorite half baked idea, like some idea that. You don't really want to write an op-ed about because people might take you seriously, but you kind of think also is kind of a serious thing. The other one I always often ask is what – if you were talking to somebody, a normal, informed person from outside of Washington, outside of your field of expertise, Mm. um, and they asked you what is – you know, what is this world that you work in really like? What is the thing that would most surprise them about that? You You can take one or both. Okay. You know, on the half-baked idea, I think I'll stay within the uh, – just because I actually have been percolating uh, uh-huh. an op-ed on this. And that is that – and this kind of goes back to the fact that we don't we don't have that, that vision, that, that – you know, with space exploration, all this kind of stuff, we're, we're looking at our phones and not up at the moon, uh-huh. right? And uh, we also somehow along the way managed to begin naming our weapon systems the most boring things possible. <laughs> uh-huh. So the replacement for the Minuteman mm-hmm. ICBM is called the ground-based strategic deterrent. I mean, there's like it, – it's just these very descriptive, mm-hmm. accurate, precise, but lifeless names. Mm-hmm. And so I've, I've got a, the op-ed percolating around that what we really need to do is to go back to ancient pagan gods. I like it. You know, I mean, we had the Atlas missile. Mm-hmm. We had the Nike and the Zeus and all these kinds of things. And then we kind of got into a American history. You've got tanks named after Sherman and, and all this kind of stuff. But the naming of mm-hmm. things matters. Uh, what you name a thing tends you know, to inspire or uninspire, I, I guess, as it were. But the Army's new post-INF missile will be you know, called long-range precision fires. That's a category of programs. I always kind of think descriptive but, but lifeless. And so I think ancient pagan gods yeah. as the names for – you know, Valkyrie, yeah. these kinds of things. Thor, you know. There, well, that, and that was a missile, yeah. you know, the Jupiter, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Now, you know, at some point, as with planets, you kind of begin to run out of gods and goddesses. But uh, the, something along those lines, whether it's, uh, you know, American uh, revolution or, or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, that's something I would like to see. I like it. I like it. Um, just asking you about half-baked ideas reminded me. So one of my long – it's now an inside joke at National Review. One of my long-standing, quasi-serious obsessions is I'm I'm I actually I, everyone has their apocalyptic end of the world scenario that they're worried about. 
nuclear weapons has never really been mine, at least not since I was a teenager, back when we got inundated with that crap, you know, the day after and all that stuff. And I'm not that worried about a meteor coming and hitting Earth, although I think we should put a lot more research into that. Um, but it'd be hypocritical of me to be that worried about that since I endorsed the sweet meteor of death in the 2016 election. That's right. That's right. Um, but what does really sometimes sort of keep me up at night is uh, like the caldera that's underneath Yellowstone, which is due to erupt and would not destroy the planet, but it would destroy North America and plunge us into nuclear winter for a very long time and all that kind of stuff. And so anyway, long story short, on the on the corner at nationalreview.com um, 20 years ago, or 15 years ago, um, I started asking why, I first asked, why can't we have fighter jets come and shoot volcanoes to sort of uh, this is a bad sci-fi. Lance the boil and like let off some of the pressure underneath. And then all my fighter, all my Air Force guys would write in and say, you don't understand. That's incredibly stupid. Here's why. And it wouldn't work. And just to be clear, I, I watch all the bad sci-fi movies. Yeah. And so then I was like, okay, well, what about lasers? And, um, and it became this thing about how America desperately needs airborne or space-based volcano lancing lasers. Hmm. And like how, f- how far away are we from like – Oh, we're only five like, years away. I'm not, five years away, tops. <laughs> I don't mean like like invisible microwave crap that just like all of a sudden the missile falls apart. But you didn't see. I'm a, I'm a cool, you know, fi, you know, uh, fire phaser bank number one stuff you mm. see that blows stuff up. How far is jo- that? Jonah, that's what the HARP facility in Alaska is all about. It's it's you know it's it's bouncing lasers off the atmosphere to affect volcanoes and the weather and all this sort of stuff. The conspiracy theorists have it right. See, that's wrong because the Jews control the weather. We know, we know this because <laughs> okay. um, a guy on the D.C. City Council said so. All right. Anyway, Tom, thank you very much for coming on. Um, I hope it wasn't too painful for you. Long-time listener, first-time caller. There Glad you go. to be here. Great to be here. Okay, so uh, Tom Carrico has left the building. Uh, someone on Twitter was saying that we need a, a left-the-building audio effect. Um, uh I don't know what Elvis used when he left the building, but something to show. The... Uh, probably his legs. <sighs> More beatings. <laughs> um, you just say that when you're mad. I make a joke that you didn't come up with. <laughs> um, and uh, so anyway, Tom's gone. And um, what'd you think of all that, Jack? Well, he was clearly he clearly knew what he was talking about. But there were one thing that did not come up in the discussion was the the dead hand technology. Uh, that the Soviet Union was alleged to have and that supposedly Russia still has. So basically this is the Dr. Strangelove thing where uh, Soviet or Russian nuclear facilities would be lined with these sensors that would detect levels of radiation in the air so that they could tell if there's a tactical nuclear exchange and the assumption is that there's a, a sufficient amount of radiation in the air, then... The Soviets have lost, but they they if they if they do lose, then they want to take everyone else down with them. So the missiles launch themselves, and everything will meet again. The end of Doctor Strange uh-huh. happens, and uh, you didn't talk about that. Like, yeah, I want to know if it exists. I want to know if it still exists. I want to know if it existed. I want to know if it still exists. I want to know if we should be worried about it. Well, I, I don't know. I've never understood the point of the Doomsday stuff. Spite. <laughs> Well, that's the thing, is right. It's 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 like Seinfeld. It's Armageddon for spite. No, but the thing I don't understand is why would you keep it secret? Then it really is for spite. Right? <laughs> I mean, the whole point is, if it's only a deterrent if you know it exists, 
right? Which is part of the joke about it at the end of Doctor Strangelove is like no one knew about it. Uh huh. So I I don't know, but maybe you know maybe maybe the right people know about it, and you know. And, Putin whispers it in the ears of American presidents and says, hey, by the way, you should know we have this thing. Um, but they don't want to tell the world that because it's, it's bad PR, yeah. right? I mean, if you're in Australia and you have nothing to do with like the fight between Russia and the United States, and you'd be pretty pissed that you're going to get destroyed too. Uh, yeah. Um, but uh, – And the other thing that I thought just was funny as an Ohio resident, uh, he, he mentioned Lincoln's – I believe it's Lincoln's Lyceum Address – which Where, I quote at length at the end of a Suicide of the West. Yes, uh, that no one shall take a drink from the Ohio. As a nation of free men, we shall live forever or or die by suicide. And uh, now there are, there are other reasons why you would never want to take a drink from the Ohio River. Uh, it's no Cuyahoga River. It hasn't caught on fire recently, but I just would not recommend taking a drink from it. Yeah, and it's it's for no, anyone. What? No foreign invader could take a drink of the Ohio River. He kind of buttered that, and you kind of buttered that because it's not like no one can. Americans can drink a drink from the Ohio River if, again if they want. I don't recommend it. The whole point was that no invader would be able to do it without us losing the will to stand up for ourselves and all the rest. Yeah. Um, did you ever? Of course, I don't know if you've seen it. Saturday Night Live used to have this great parody commercial, and you know. Uh, probably late 70s, early 80s. You know the song Anticipation? Yeah, Carly Simon. Yeah, so that was for a while the jingle for um, Heinz Ketchup because they were trying to own, they were trying to, you know, own the fact that it takes so long for the ketchup to come out of the bottle. Uh-huh. You know. Were the bottles still glass back then? Yes. Oh. It, they still have glass. They do, but they're, they've been mostly replaced with squeezable yeah. plastic ones. Um, which is also true of a lot of sex robots, but that's another story. <laughs> um, the, and so there was anticipation as the watch in the restaurant as the ketchup takes forever to come out of the bottle. And, um, Saturday Night Live did a parody commercial where, uh, they did the same thing with, um, I believe it was water from Lake Erie. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that took forever to come out of the bottle. And when it does, there's like trash and like bottle, like uh, aluminum can tabs stuck in it, and it was like really gross. And uh, that's what had me thinking about it. Um, we love our Great Lakes on the Remnant. We do. We're, we're pro Great Lakes. Um, other things to talk about. Well, so my take on on Tom, it was interesting. I I hope listeners like it. We're willing to do wonky, weird stuff that's outside of everybody's comfort zone. I thought Tom was, uh, I'll put this diplomatically, admirably restrained in taking in 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 avoiding taking the bait of some of my um uh, more pointed uh, punditizing about the Trump administration. But uh, I will just be clear: I really don't think. Donald Trump has the slightest clue about a lot of these finer international relations points about deterrence and whatnot. I mean, on the campaign trail, he said that nobody knows more about nuclear than I do. And when asked to back that up, he said, well, my uncle was a nuclear physicist. And let, let's not forget the nuclear triad moment that happened twice. Oh, with, with Hugh Hewitt, right? Well, twice, twice from the same interlocutor. Yeah, where he... um. What was it now? First, in an, he didn't know what it was, and clearly was trying to uh, avoid making it obvious that he didn't. First, in, an, in a radio interview. All right, let me ask you about the American nuclear triad. Is it necessary anymore, Donald Trump? Is it affordable? 
I think that one of the most important things that we have to worry about is nuclear, generally speaking. The power of nuclear, the power of the weapons we have today. And that's why, by the way, that's why our deal with Iran, the concept of it, is so important. Which is a little more understandable, because you, like, you can get stuff thrown at you and you don't know. But then it, was, it happened again at the, at the debate, and right. clearly he had not made any attempt to right. shore up his knowledge on the subject. Uh, the right three now. legs of the triad, though, do you have a priority? Because I want to go to Senator Rubio well, I, after I think, that. I think him. to me, Luke, nuclear is just the, the power, the devastation is very important to me. Yeah, it was, it was, but there are a lot of those sort of 220, 221, whatever it takes moments from Trump where he doesn't know what someone's talking about. That's a reference to a, a movie with Michael Keaton. You don't know that movie? What movie? Um, uh, what was it? Um, Mr. Mom. You know, Mr. Mom is about me. How's His character's name is Jack Butler. Is that right? Uh huh. It's a, I would argue it's one of the more underrated comedies of the last 30 years. It's a, and everybody I know of, of a certain age has seen it a zillion times on cable. Yeah, it's but there's a scene where uh, Terry Garr, his wife's boss, comes in and is asking him about how he's going to wire the house. And he's pretending like he knows anything. And he says, yeah, 220, 221, whatever it takes in terms of like the voltage because he doesn't know how that kind of stuff works. And there's a lot of that in the Trump administration. There um, was uh, one point – I mean this is just his, historical cataloging at this point. Listeners can make of the facts what they will. But back when Rand Paul's relationship with Trump was different, at one point they were discussing TPP and uh, Trump was saying how opposed to it he was and how China is eating our lunch, giving his spiel about that, right. uh, which that may be true. But Rand Paul just brought up China's not part of TPP. Right. So I say it's a very bad deal, should not be approved. If it is approved, it'll just be more bad trade deals, more loss of jobs for our country. We are losing jobs like nobody's ever lost jobs before. I want to bring jobs back into this country. Hey, Gerard, you know, we might want to point out China's not part of this deal. Yeah. True. It's true. That's right. That's right. And it they, they just moved on. It almost yeah. – it, it just happened. It was – there's not a trade person I know who thinks that the pulling out of TPP and getting nothing for it um, wasn't insanely dumb. And and it was obvious on the campaign trail, particularly in that moment, that Trump did not know that it was a way to have leverage over China. It was a comparative advantage thing to uh, constrain China, not to like give China stuff. But, you know, then again, we can talk about trades. We should get Scotland to come back in here. And then again, he's president and we're not. That's true, which is why we can't have nice things, I guess. But, um, but he doesn't have the Remnant podcast. Yes, well, that is why it's called the Remnant podcast. So anyway, before we got off on all that digression, I just um, – uh, I think some of this was a bit of finding faces in clouds in the sense that I think it's absolutely true that the guys at the Pentagon and – and, and the national security apparatus that Tom deals with, they see these things along the lines that he was describing. But it is it is just not obvious to me in any stretch that that Donald Trump has or wants a granular understanding of this stuff. And in fact, the way he was describing at that at that press conference thing or that event last week at the Pentagon, the way Trump was describing what the missile review thing says differed from what the missile review thing said. And um, and I think that's kind of typical. 
And I also – I just think that the damage that is being done – again, it's a continuity thing going from – you know, you could say from the failure of the Iraq war to Obama pulling out prematurely, uh, the red line stuff, the stuff with Eastern Europe and all the stuff that we were talking about with Donald Trump. I, I think the faith and confidence in America as a reliable partner has taken a, a real hit and if we see uh, the Kurds get wiped out by uh, the Turks, which I think is a very possible thing if we go ahead with pulling out of Syria, not only will we see the rise of ISIS, but we'll see the people who have, done, who have shed more blood for America foreign policy aims as our allies on the ground. We'll see them – I don't want to say decimated because we are literalists here about the word decimate. Uh, but they'll be – They'll learn a very important lesson that America can't be relied on and that lesson won't be unique to the Kurds. It'll be unique to a lot of people. And one of the things that is really important going forward in terms of the sort of asymmetric war era and all the rest is that you need the real force multiplier is being able to work with allies on the ground who trust you and that um, um, will expect you to honor their commitments. And if we don't honor our commitments to the Kurds, I think that's a huge problem going forward. Maybe not in terms of nuclear deterrence contests between China and Russia, but at the peripheries where a lot of these things can lead to nuclear contests, it'll be a real problem. And I, I'll be paying very close attention to people like Ted Cruz, who constantly invoked the using the Kurds to beat ISIS and how they are our allies and whether or not all of those guys who used that talking point in 2016 – um, whether or not they'll stand up for them or not. But uh, that's neither here nor there. Anyhow, thanks everybody for listening. Um, I don't know what we're doing next week, but I didn't know what we were doing this week either. So please keep the reviews coming. And also, you know, uh, I, we're so close to 3,000 reviews on iTunes. But the other thing that really, really helps in terms of getting the podcast out there is word of mouth. In fact, you know, I was talking to somebody in the podcast industry, you know, this lavish, well-funded industry, <laughs> um, uh, who is saying that it, you know, that the real driver now, because there's just so many podcasts and there's so much noise, and you don't people don't look through lists on iTunes and these kinds of things, is they go by word of mouth. And so, if you like this podcast, even if you don't like any individual one, you know, if you tweet about it, odds are you're going to get uh, retweeted by either my account or the Remnant Podcast account. Um, that bot is pretty good about it. But please tell your friends, tell your enemies um, <laughs> about uh, about the remnant, and uh, we'd really appreciate it. And and uh, that's it. Until next week, I'll see you next time. A podcast. This is you won't know. <laughs> we'll meet again.